this morning we're going to begin our, not begin, continue our study on the tabernacle in the wilderness. And we've been moving through all the various pieces of furniture from the uh, brazen altar. And now this morning we're going to take up the study of the Ark of the Covenant, which was placed in the Holy of Holies. We'll begin by looking at uh, Exodus chapter 25, and we'll begin in verse number 10. And uh, God gives us the instructions that he gave to Moses for building the Ark of the Covenant that was placed inside of the Holy of Holies. Let's look at it and begin reading in verse 10. And they shall make an ark of shittim wood. Two cubics and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubic and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubic and a half the height thereof. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold. Within and without shalt thou overlay it. And shall make upon it a crown of gold round about. And thou shalt cast four rings of gold for it, and put them in the four corners thereof. And two rings shall be in the one side of it, and two rings in the other side of it. And thou shalt make staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with gold. And thou shalt put the staves into the rings by the sides of the ark. You may want to underline the next phrase. It's important that the ark may be born with them. The staves shall be put in the rings of the ark. And again, you may want to underline this line. They shall not be taken from it. And thou shalt put into the ark the testimony which I give thee. And thou shalt make a mercy seat of gold. Two cubics and a half shall be the length thereof. And a cubic and a half the breadth thereof. Let's end our reading there because we'll have a separate study on the uh, mercy seat. Uh, maybe not this week uh, or the next week. We've got a couple of lessons in between about the context of the ark. But let's look this morning at the ark of the covenant. Uh, before we look at the uh, construction of it and the pictures and the applications, let me give you just a little brief history of the ark. Uh, this was the one central most important item in the entire tabernacle. And uh, this was the center of the Jewish worship from the time that God gave Moses the instructions to build the ark uh, right up until the uh, uh, ark disappeared and uh, was never seen again. Let me give you a brief history. I won't give you all of the, uh, won't read all of the verses that go with it, but they're listed in the notes that you've got. The tabernacle was started about uh, the year 1491 B.C., 1490 B.C., along in there. That's in Exodus 25, verses 1 through 9. Later, the ark was moved to Solomon's temple. That was about 500 B.C. Look at 1 Kings 6, verse 19. It was the ark that led Israel through the Jordan River in Joshua chapter 6. It was the ark that the priest carried on his shoulders when they circled the city of Jericho and the walls fell. That's in Joshua chapter 9. Then the ark was set up in Shiloh. That's in Joshua chapter 18. It was taken captive by the Philistines in 1 Samuel chapter 4. It was recovered by David and placed in Solomon's temple again in 1 Samuel chapter 5 and chapter 6. The ark was lost when Babylon came in and destroyed Jerusalem about 587 B.C. Uh, that's in 2 Kings chapter 24. Uh, since that time, 
there's a lot of speculation as where the ark, what happened to the ark, where the ark is today. Uh, none of that speculation can be proved. I'm not against it. It's just a matter of nobody knows where the ark is, whether it's still in existence and God has it hidden. Uh, I'm sure of this. Uh, uh, either it was destroyed or God had the ark hidden. If men had the ark today, if someone found the ark today, it uh, there's no doubt whatsoever that somebody would come along and build a religious system based on that ark and around that ark that would be false and not true to the ark that we have that we're studying about today. But uh, it was kind of it's kind of a strange situation. Let's start by looking at the commencement of the building of the tabernacle. Of course, we've already been through the tabernacle to the outer court, the uh, inner courts, the uh, holy place, and the most holy place. But, you know, today, uh, you and I as men, people everywhere, doesn't matter who it is, where they are, uh, if we're going to build a house, we draw up the plans, we get an architect to make the plans, whatever we do and find a location and we begin to build the house and we lay the foundation and we put the walls up. Uh, in short, we build the entire house and then when the house is all complete, it's finished, it's painted, it's ready to be moved into, then we go out somewhere and start to look for furniture that would uh, fit into the ark, fit, fit into the house that we built that uh, uh, matches it up in decor and whatever you might want to call it. And we buy furniture or we bring furniture from some of the places and we put it in and we uh, furnish the house. Uh, that's not the way God did it. And there's a, there's a reason for that. Uh, when God built the house or when God built the tabernacle, the first thing that he described to Moses and gave instructions are for was the, uh, was the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, we just read that text a few minutes ago in Exodus chapter 25 and verse 10 through 16 or 17 along in there. You see, the heart of any house, or I'm sorry, the, 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 the heart of the tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenant. And once God established the Ark, the heart of the covenant, then he designed the tabernacle around it to make it a fit plan for what God was trying to teach the Jews and also trying to uh, picture for us as to what it would be like when the Lord Jesus Christ came. You see, if you go back to Exodus chapter 25 and look in verse 8, uh, that's where God first had told Moses to build a tabernacle. He said, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. And then in verse 10, he said, they shall make me an ark. Now, ark is a place of safekeeping, and we'll look at that in just a few minutes. But the ark, what you to understand is that was the heart of the tabernacle. Everything else centered around that ark. Again, today, you and I as men, in a spiritual sense, not building a, a house made with hands, men always want to start with the outside and work toward God. Uh, I've heard it called, uh, well, I need to turn over a new leap. I need to get my life straightened out. I need to get some things out of my life. I need to get better so I can have a relationship with God. That's not the way it works. God always begins his work with the heart. And then from the heart, he works 
outside toward men. Uh, the heart is the centerpiece of man. Everything centers around the heart. Uh, look in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 18, and we'll read a couple of verses here. Matthew 15 and verse 18. Matthew 15 and verse 18. God says, but those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from where? The heart. And they defile men. Now turn over to Luke chapter 6. And let's look at verse 45. Luke chapter 6 and verse 45. Luke chapter 6 and verse 45 says, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For out of the abundance of the heart the man speaketh. See, in Scripture, all things start with God, and God always starts with the man. Uh, you know, I've heard people say, and I'm sure you've heard people say, uh, well, when I started looking for God, uh, and they got other ways of praying it, praising it. Truth is, man has never since the very beginning gone out looking for God. God, uh, men are sinners, they're lost, they're undone, and uh, they've never, out of their carnal, physical nature, as sinners never have started out looking for God. It doesn't work that way. Look in chapter 6, verse 14, 44 of John. John chapter 6 and verse 44. You're all familiar with this work, this verse. It says, no man can come to me. You get the meaning there? We're talking about people that say, well, when I started looking for God, I made my mind up that I needed to find God and get God in my life. No, no man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Uh, now, uh, you say, well, that could be used to teach uh, the doctrine of Calvinism that, uh, you know, people are elected and God draws them and uh, other people are not elected and God does not draw them. Now, I'll turn over to John chapter 12. Let's read verse 32. You're all familiar with this verse. Verse 32 of John chapter 12 says, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw what? All men unto me. So if you talk to someone... And they say, well, I, I started looking for God, or well, I'm searching for God. I'm wanting to find God. I'm wanting to get God in my life. That should put you on notice immediately that the Spirit of God has already begun to work in their heart. Now, they don't understand that. They don't know that. They may not even agree with you on that. But that should let you know that the Holy Spirit of God is working in their heart. Uh, God is drawing them toward him. God is convicting them of their sins. God's wanting them to trust Jesus Christ and be saved. That should motivate you and encourage you to seek the guidance of the Holy Spirit of God and begin to share with them, ask them questions, to draw them out and bring them to the place that uh, you can help them have that relationship with God, even though they don't understand that God's drawing them, you do. 
and that should be a key motivation factor for you to continue to talk with them because you know God's already working and Lord willing you can uh, lead them to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ later on down the road they'll grow and they'll understand that God was working in their heart they weren't looking for God but all of that, everything starts with God in the spiritual world. Romans 5, 8, you're all familiar with the scripture. It says, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, let, let me just add this in. I've given you an attachment that deals with the contents of Herod's temple over in the New Testament. Uh, there was still a temple set up uh, in Christ's day. It was called Herod's temple. Uh, from all that I've read and studied, it was an extremely expensive and an extremely beautiful building. Uh, it had all of the pieces of furniture that you and I have studied about in the tabernacle. It had a holy of holies in it. But inside that Holy of Holies, there was no ark. The ark had disappeared, never been found after Babylon destroyed Jerusalem. Uh, the rest of it was preserved, and it was still being used in the uh, territory that him, the, the, the temple that Herod built. But there was no ark in it. As beautiful as it was, it looked good. But listen to me now. It only had a religious system because it had no heart. The ark where God said, I will meet you with you there, was not present in Herod's tabernacle. Now, are y'all listening? What did that beautiful, 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 expensive religious system accomplish in the days of our Lord Jesus Christ? It was that religious system that crucified our Lord Jesus Christ. And you want to apply that today, religion, regardless of what religion it is, how beautiful buildings they build, how eloquent it is, how expensive it is, and what a beautiful, beautiful system of religion they have. <clears throat> if it does not have Christ at the center of it, it will always produce death. Now, before we move into the construction of the ark, because there's some tremendous applications there, uh, let me just share some thoughts with you about the ark itself. The word ark, if you study it and look it up, <clears throat> means a place of safekeeping. Look back over in Genesis chapter 6. There's other arks that we find in the scripture. You're familiar with uh, two of them we're going to look at the, this morning. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 6 and verse 14, again, God is giving instructions about building an ark. He said, make thee an ark of gopher wood. Room shall thy make in the ark, and shall pitch it within and without with pitch. That was what we call Noah's ark. And what was it? It was a place of safekeeping for Noah and his family of eight that had found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And then if you want to turn over to Exodus chapter 2, we'll look at uh, an, uh, another ark that uh, God had built under the, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, no doubt, concerning Moses. Uh, 
Look at verse 1. And there went a man of the house of Levi and took to wife a daughter of Levi. And the woman conceived and bare a son. And when she saw him that he was a goodly child, <clears throat> she hid him three months. And when she could no longer hide him, she took for him an ark of bulrushes and daubed it with slime and with pitch and put the child therein and she laid it in the flags by the river's banks. That's what you and I call uh, Moses' ark. That was an ark that his mother and father built, placed Moses as a little three-month-old child in that ark. And you know the story, he went down the river and Pharaoh's daughter took him out. But that was an ark of safekeeping. It was to save his life because God had plans for him. And we've been studying the life of Moses here in the building of his tabernacle. The ark of a covenant, the ark of the covenant, was a place of safekeeping for the testimony of God. To keep God's testimony safe and preserve it. And it was a twofold testimony. It was for God and against God. People that disobeyed and sinned against God and complained. And we'll look at that in a couple of weeks too. But the ark was a place of safekeeping just by definition. All right. We've looked at the uh, commencement of how that God started the tabernacle with the heart and then worked to the outside and designed the rest of it from that point. God works the same way in my life and your life. God always starts with the heart. And once you have a new heart by trusting Jesus Christ, then God, through his word, the preaching of his word, your uh, Sunday school studies, your studies at home, God slowly transforms and builds the outside of your life. A person that has self-reformation, they may look good. People may say, oh, what a good fellow he is. But without a heart, they're eternally lost until their hearts changed. So from there, let's go. Let's look at the construction of the ark. There's a tremendous truth here. We've already touched on it a couple of times through the tabernacle, but uh, this is one of the more clear, more important uh, <clears throat> pictures of it that we want to look at. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 25, just uh, verse number 10. And let me try to share some truths in the way that hopefully they'll uh, even become more real to you. It said, and they shall make an ark of Shedom wood. And we'll stop right there. Shedom wood came from a tree that is called the Arcadia tree. Uh, it was a very hard, very indestructible wood, uh, far harder than any wood that you and I are familiar with here in the United States. Uh, the, the Arcadia wood grew plentifully in one place in the world and that was in the Sinai Desert and that's where the Israelites were for 40 years that's where they were when God spoke to Moses and they designed and built the tabernacle under God's leadership and he gave them the pattern for it but it's, I said that to say the Israelites were very familiar with the Arcadia tree sheet of wood it was common to them they could identify with it. And uh, that's a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. He, the, the wood that was uh, used to build the tabernacle uh, that grew there in the hot, dry desert where there was no water, uh, nothing conducive to a tree being grown. And you recall the scripture, we've looked at it several times, Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 2 speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ prophetically. 
and says he was a root out of dry ground. Uh, now, I'm just pointing out again, this was something that the Israelites were very familiar with. It was common to them. They could identify with it. Uh, if God had have said, uh, I want you to build this out of cedar wood, they would have had to travel 600 miles over to Lebanon to find cedars. Now, Lebanon was famous for cedars, but the Israelites had never been to Lebanon. They came out of Egypt. They'd been in the Sinai Desert 40 years, and they were not familiar with it. They could not identify with it. They didn't really know what cedars were. Uh, if he had have said, build it out of oak wood, uh, they would have had to travel to the land of the Philistines, and uh, that's where the huge oak trees grew in those days. That was about 450 miles away, but again, they were not familiar with oak trees. They were not familiar with things built. They could not identify with cedar. They could not identify with oak. The acacia wood was the only tree that grew in the Sinai Desert that had enough wood in it that uh, you could build anything out of. Uh, are you with me? They could not identify with those things. Now, there's a picture in that for you and I today uh, that's still very real. Uh, you and I could not have identified with our Lord Jesus Christ. If he had have come to earth when he did as the Son of God, if he had have come in the form of an archangel, or if he had have come in the form even of an angel, or if he had to come in the form of some other type of mystical being that uh, we could not have identified with those things. You and I don't have the capacity mentally, emotionally, or in any other way to identify with an archangel or with an angel or with a heavenly mystical being, whatever type it might have been. We could not have identified with anything that came out of heaven in that way. If our Lord Jesus had come as an archangel or an angel and he said, uh, I want you to have this mind in you, the mind which was in the archangel where the Son of God came, you and I would have said, how, how is that possible? That's not possible. We can't identify. We don't know what an archangel thinks like. Or if he had come with an angel, or if he had said, I want you to be conformed to the image of my dear Son, we would, we would have no idea how to be conformed to the image of an angel or an archangel of some kind of heavenly being. That would have been totally impossible. But how did he come? How did our Lord Jesus come as our Savior? He came in the form of something that you and I can identify with. Uh, all of you know the scriptures. We're going to turn and read them anyway. John chapter 14. I'm sorry, John chapter 1 and verse 14. John chapter 1 and verse 14, it says, And the Word, which that's speaking of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Word was what? Made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, turn over, if you will, to Philippians chapter 2. Uh, even more clear more easy for you and I to understand Philippians chapter 2 and look at verse number 7 
Let's look at verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. There's the verse we just talked about. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but what did he do? He made himself of no reputation. He didn't come here as God to identify with you and I. He made of himself no reputation, but took upon himself the form of a servant and was made how? In the likeness of men. And being found in fashion of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of his cross. Now, what am I trying to emphasize this morning? He came and took on the form of a man. That's something that you and I can identify with. He came and took on not only, let me explain a little bit the form of a man. Now, we've already looked at and studied in several times. He was the God-man. He was very God of very God, but he was, he was as so much God that it was as if he was not man at all. But, you and I can't explain this, so don't ask me to, but he was also very man of very man, meaning that he was so much a man, so totally man, so completely man like you and I are, that he was not God at all. He was the God-man. And being in the form of a man, the Bible's extremely clear on this matter. Turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Turn to Hebrews chapter 4 and we'll start there. Hebrews chapter 4 and look at verse 15. Look at verse 14. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into heavens, the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmity, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Go back and look at that. Who cannot be touched, a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmity. How was Jesus Christ able to be touched with the feelings of our infirmity? And how was he able to be tempted in all points as we are? Because he went through that when he was here on earth in the form of a man. <clears throat> he understands all the temptations that you and I go through every day. He experienced those temptations. You go back to where he was led of the Spirit out into the wilderness. And Satan came and tempted him just like he tempts you and I. By the way, he never did argue with Satan. He never, never did get into discussion with Satan. And you and I need to learn from that. Every time and on all three occasions when Satan came and tempted him, what did he do? He went to the Word of God and he said, Thus it is written. So when Satan comes and tempts you, tempts me, we need to go to the Word of God and quote the Scriptures to him. That's the reason we need to hide the Word of God in our heart that we might not sin against him. Uh, that's uh, give you a little clearer illustration understanding of what that verse means you hide the word of god in your heart where when satan comes to you and tempts you you can say it's written satan by the way i might just throw this in just for uh when satan comes and reminds you of your past and wants you to feel guilty you remind him of his future he'll go away but he knows 
and has experienced and has been touched with all the things that you and I go through, not only with temptations. Listen to me now. He understands that you and I get tired. He understands that you and I have weaknesses. He understands that you and I get hungry. He understands and can identify that you and I get thirsty. He understands that we only have natural abilities, not supernatural abilities. Just just a point. You, re, you recall when the Lord Jesus Christ walked into the room, he walked through a wall into the presence of the disciples. But that was after his death, burial, and resurrection. He didn't walk through walls when he was in the form of a man. Uh, listen, you got to understand this. You know, we know some things intellectually in our head. I'm praying God will make it real to you in your heart. Turn with me to John chapter 4. I want to give you a couple of examples how he can uh, identify with us, how he can uh, feel all that we feel. He understands me. He understands you. He understands everything that we go through. Look in John chapter 4. Let's begin reading in verse 7. We're going to read all of it just so that we'll be sure we get the entire message. <clears throat> I said verse 6. Let's go back to verse, I've said 7. Let's go back to verse 6. This is Jesus and the Samaritan woman. <clears throat> John 4 and verse 6. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus therefore being wearied, underline the word, being weary with his journey, sat down on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Watch now. Jesus said unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. Then said the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith unto thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked him, and he would have given thee spiritual water. You with me? Watch now. Two natures. He said, If you knew who it was, you would ask me to give you to drink, and I'd give you uh, living water to drink. That was the deity part. That was the God part of our Lord Jesus. But look back up in verse 7. Verse number 6, he said he was weary. Verse number 7, he said, I'm thirsty. Please give me something to drink. That was the man part of him. He understands that you and I get tired, get weary, need to rest, and we get thirsty. Now turn over to Mark chapter 4. Turn back to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4 and verse 35. Give you one more illustration along that same line. Mark chapter 4 and verse 35. Here again, you're familiar with the story. Uh, he had gone into a ship with his disciples and was going to push out uh, onto the Sea of Galilee. Said in the same day when the eve was come, he said unto them, Let us pass over unto the other side. And when they had sent the multitude, when he had sent away the multitude, they took him even as he was in the ship. How was he? I think the, the text indicates and shows us he was tired. 
and there were also other little ships. And there arose a great storm of wind. And when the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full, and he was in the hinder part of the ship asleep on a pillar, and they wake him and said unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Do you see the two natures of our Lord Jesus Christ? He was God. He was man. The disciples got alarmed. They thought their ship was going to sink. Their life was in danger. They went where he was asleep, and he woke them up. And he said, Master, we perish. He stood up, rebuked the wind, and the disciples were marveled and amazed. They say, even the winds and the waves obey his part, obey his voice. That was the God part of our Lord Jesus Christ. But no doubt, shortly before that, when they entered the ship, he was weary already. They took him in. He had been speaking for an extended period of time to the great multitude. And he said, fellows, I'm tired. I'm going to go back here in the back part of the ship, find me a pillow. I'm going to lay my head down. I'm wore out. I'm weary. I'm exhausted. I'm tired. And he went to sleep. That was the man part of him. Are y'all listening to me? He can identify with you, and he can identify with me, and we can identify with him because he understands all there is to understand about us. And he knows when we're tired, when we're weary, and he's always got the answer, and he loves us, and he's sympathetic with us. And, you know, don't ever feel guilty about stopping what you're doing, maybe as important it is, and say, I've got to take a nap. Uh, our Lord Jesus Christ understands that, and he expects that. You remember another place in the scriptures, he said to the disciples, come ye yourself apart, and what? Rest a while. Before we move on and conclude the lesson, let me give you one more verse that uh, sometimes we read over and read over and read over and read over. And we just miss some things. Turn to First Timothy chapter 2. First Timothy chapter 2. You're familiar with this, but I think you'd do good. You may want to underline something. First Timothy chapter 2. Let's look at verse 5. This goes right along with what we've been sharing from the scriptures. First Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men. Who was it? The man, Christ Jesus. It does not say there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the God, Christ Jesus. It says the man, Christ Jesus. When he go, when Jesus Christ goes before the throne of God and he's on the right hand of God making intercession for us today, every day, all day, he's able to make intercession for us because he's there in the form of a man. He's been in the form of a man. He understands all of our needs and therefore he's able to mediate between you and I as men and God who was totally God, completely God, was not in the form of a man. Turn again with me. We've already looked at this in lessons past, but go back to Job chapter 9. Go back to Job chapter 9. I want you to see this and get it all put together. Job chapter 9 and verse 1. Then Job asked 
answered and said, I know it is so of a truth. Watch now. But how shall a man be just with God? <clears throat> Job asked a question. People still ask it today. Then he spent the next 30 verses going back and forth, but say, talking about God's not a man like I'm a man. He went back and forth about uh, how is it possible for me to be just with God because I'm a man and he's God. And he goes through all of those illustrations and talks. he talks about his days are numbered. God's days are not numbered. Are you, are you getting the picture? He, he knew that God was totally different from him. Uh, that he could not identify with God, and God could not identify with him. But look down at verse 32. He said, For he is not a man, as I am, that I should answer him, and we should come together in judgment. Neither is there any daysman. Watch now. Neither is there any daysman. What did I tell you before? What is a daysman? A daysman is a, is a Hebrew word for a mediator. Neither is there any daysman between us. Watch now that he may lay his hand upon, his, upon us both. You could paraphrase that without doing any damage to the scripture. Neither is there any daysman between us that can understand both a holy God and a sinful man and mediate between us to bring us together. Do you all see the picture there? But yet Jesus Christ came in the form of a man as much man as if he was not God at all. He understands us. He understands our weaknesses, our tired. He understands our temptation. Jesus Christ is our daysman. He can lay his, hand, lay his hand upon a holy God and lay the other hand upon a sinful man and understand both sides and mediate and bring us together into full reconciliation with the God of heaven. Now, let, let me bring this to a close quickly. Uh, the gold that covers the wood speaks of deity. We've covered that in every article of the purchaser, so we won't elaborate on that. Then it says there was a crown round about. Now, that's extremely important, but we won't get to it today. We'll get to that when we get to the mercy seat. But the crown speaks of our Lord Jesus Christ as being the King of Kings. I'll give you some statements here, and you can look them up. They're on your notes. He came from the line of King David. That's found in Luke chapter 1, verse 32. He was born to be a king. That's in Matthew 2, verse 2. He was mocked by unbelievers as a king. Matthew 27, verse 29. He was declared by Pilate when he was nailed to the cross. They put a sign up over it. They nailed a sign above his head at the top of the cross, apparently. In Matthew 27, verse 32. 37 said king of the jews one day in 11 revelation chapter 19 verse 6 says he's coming back as a king he's going to be king of king and lord of lords and then he's going to be crowned as king he's going to rule and reign as king in luke chapter 1 in verse 32 now let me just touch on one other verse that uh, i pointed out said it was important back to exodus chapter 25 and verse 15, the stave shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. That was how the ark of God was to be transported. Now, we won't get into this in great detail. Uh, we'll study this later on. But you'll recall back in the Old Testament, God gave clear, specific instructions on how the ark was to be moved. 
That's given in Numbers chapter 4 and verse 15 and Numbers chapter 7 verse 9. How was it to be moved? Scripture says it was to be borne on the shoulders of men. Those staves were put in there where they had men on each corner and they picked that up with those staves up on his shoulders and they transported that ark. They were never ever to touch that ark. Uh, when, the, when the ark was taken captive by the Philistines, they used a worldly way. They didn't transport the ark. God did not judge them in that way for it because they were lost people and didn't understand the things of God. But they created what the Bible calls a new cart. And that's in 1 Samuel chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Then when David went out to reclaim the ark, did war with the Philistines' army, and he recaptured the ark, David, as a believer, maybe to make things easier, tried to copy the ways of the world. And David built a new cart, new cart and put the ark on it. That's in 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 7 and 8. As they went along on a rocky road, the cart did not stay balanced like the ark did on the shoulders of men. It got to rocking back and forth because it was rocky, rolling on wheels that were rolling on the, the, the dirt and the stones and the rocks of this world. That's not the way you do God's work. And you remember that Uzziah touched, reached out and tried to touch the ark, and he meant well. But he was doing something that God told him not to do. Uh, you don't try to change the way God does things. We don't try to change the way God. Christians should not try to change the way. Let me put it this way. We got a lot of churches today. They want to come with worldly ways and try to add to and improve and help God in what God wants done. God said by the preaching of the word of God, God's got his ways of doing everything, but you, you, when, when Uzziah reached out and touched the ark, the Bible says God struck him dead. That's in 2 Samuel chapter 6 and verse 6 and 7. You'll do good to let God make this real to you. Are you, are you, you're, you know, all through here we've studied, God told Moses, said, you make it after the pattern that I showed you. I'm not leaving anything to your discretion to change. I'm not leaving anything to the workmen that are going to construct the ark. I don't want them to change one thing in the plan that I give you. And now keep in mind, this is a picture of New Testament uh, Christianity. This is a picture of the New Testament church. This is a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ all the way to today. God said, Moses, I'm not leaving anything to your imagination as to how you think it ought to be done. I'm not leaving anything to the skilled and the great abilities, as great as they are for the workmen, they're not to change or add to or take away from what I'm showing you in the building of this tabernacle. And I'm certainly not leaving anything to the desires of the people to make them like it or enjoy it more. Listen to me. God's ways are non-negotiable. And we need to learn that today, and we need to stand steadfast, unmovable, and practice what God tells us to practice in the New Testament as far as carrying on the work, bearing it on our shoulders in the way that God pictured for us in the tabernacle, and stop bringing the world into the church and adding to because we think it will help. 
God doesn't need any help. I've said that before. How many of you understand that? God doesn't need our help. God lets us serve him. God gives us the privilege of serving him, but God does not give us the lead way to design the way we are to try to reach people for Christ, the way we are trying to entertain people as many churches are today. God help us. God's ways are non-negotiable. God is a holy God. He's just, he is Jesus Christ with a pure sinful man, and he's got a plan for you and I to carry on his work, and we need to do it exactly like God has showed us and told us to do it. Let's bow in prayer. Let's remember to have prayer for Brother Cutshaw in the services to come.